The reading today is from Song of Songs again, chapter 5, verses 10 to 63. That's on page 683 of the Church Bibles. My beloved is radiant and ruddy, outstanding among 10,000. His head is purest gold, his hair is wavy and black as a raven. His eyes are like doves by the water streams, washed in milk, mounted like jewels. His cheeks are like beds of spice, yielding perfume. His lips are like lilies, dripping with myrrh. His arms are rods of gold, set with topaz. His body is like polished ivory, decorated with lapis lazuli. His legs are pillars of marble, set on bases of pure gold. His appearance is like Lebanon, choice as its cedars. His mouth is sweetness itself. He is altogether lovely. This is my beloved. This is my friend, daughters of Jerusalem. Where has your beloved gone, most beautiful of women? Which way did your beloved turn, that we may look for him with you? My beloved has gone down to his garden, to the beds of spices, to browse in the gardens and to gather lilies. I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. He browses among the lilies. Thank you very much, Dave. Uh, do please keep that open or if you didn't open it when it was announced to open it now, we'll be following along in there and it will make much more, much more sense if you can see it. Um, my name's Morris, I'm one of the leaders here. I'll be opening this passage up to us today. Let's pray before we jump in together. Lord, we thank you for all that we are seeing and having our eyes open to about what you're like as we read Song of Songs. We pray for that work of your spirit today. Please will the spirit uh, your spirit, Jack's just been talking to us about, please will he be with us, fill us, bring us to see your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, let me begin by being honest. I mean, I hope I'm always honest, but particular honesty today. I uh, think about what we should speak on over an academic year at church like quite a bit in advance. And you may have picked up, if you're a regular here, that this academic year, September to August, we're trying to focus on growing in our personal love for God and experiencing his love for us, particularly. And so I thought we should speak on this book of Song of Songs. Song of Songs is a book, it frames every love story that we've ever known as simply an echo, a copy of Jesus, the great groom, passionately desiring the love of his people. I think, though, I fear that as we've gone through the book, it appears that me, or maybe Josh as well, we can teach these things to you because that's what we're doing all the time. We're getting it right. We've sorted it out, and now I can tell you. But I need to be clear, I need to be honest with you, that this invitation to this type of spirituality this deeply emotional, intimate knowing of Jesus. Speaking about that has been pretty disruptive to me too. Uh, you know, about a year ago, 
I blindly chose something to speak on because I knew it was vaguely to do with that thing we want to focus on for the year. And then I find God's shaking me up as I get ready to talk to you about it. And I'm saying this because the nature of all of this that we are talking about is an invitation for all of us to go on a journey. And you can't just sit and listen passively, nod along, or, you know, not nod along, not even listen. Sit there, let it wash over you, and then go on your way. Or you can take the invitation to be a Christian, maybe in a different, better way, than we were doing that before. And maybe you're here today and you're not a Christian, or you're not sure whether you're a Christian or you want to be. Well, I want to say we're all learning. Come and join us, seeing things in new ways. The story of Song of Songs started with this uncertain woman who'd been criticised for her unattractiveness. That's what everyone else thought of her. And she's longing for the kisses of the one she loves. And when she meets him in the story, it turns out he has both the great glory and strength of a king and the tender care of a shepherd. And when she uncertainly finds him and looks in his eyes, she finds he loves her. He welcomes her into his household. He shares everything he has for her with her. She spends time dreaming of being close to him. And then he arrives in kingly glory. There's a wedding. He speaks glorious words of confidence to her, building her confidence until they're truly united. It's a love story. But it is our story, isn't it? We wonder, are we loved? We look in the face of Jesus, the shepherd king, and discover he longs to pour out everything he has for you. We know and we dream that there's nothing better than closeness with him, and one day we'll experience that perfectly when he returns to make everything new. But last week, we started on an unsettling bit of the story. The king is knocking to come in and see his bride, and basically, she can't be bothered getting up to open the door. So he respects her wishes, and he goes away. But she suddenly regrets her decision, and she finds that life outside the loving protection of her king is dangerous and difficult, and she longs for him back. And that may be you. You may have lost Jesus. Maybe for a while, you didn't want him interrupting your life, disturbing, disrupting the way that you were used to being a Christian. Maybe today you're at church because you're beginning to see that life outside the loving care of Jesus is even more battering and bruising than the disruption of being with him. When Josh talked about this last week, it spoke to me deeply, this idea that Jesus being let into every part of our life is what he's knocking to do. And it's intimidating. And it's actually different to the way I had fallen into being a Christian. Doing things for Jesus because, you know, I respected him or I believed in him, which are all good things. But this call to let him love me and to love him back 
that was a, a bell ringing. So if we have lost Jesus, how do we get him back? Well, we're going to go back to the love story to find out how does the bride find him again? Her frantic searching for him has only got her into trouble. So how does she find him? This is the first thing that we see, being easily found. Look at the story unfolding here. The woman says um, in verse uh, 8, help me find him. She says to this group of people, the daughters of Jerusalem, who've been around her in the whole story, I charge you, it's really important, find him and tell him, I do want him, I'm faint with love, I got it wrong. The friends are, fair to say, unsympathetic. 5 verse 9, they say to her, How is your beloved better than others, most beautiful of women? How is your beloved better than others that you so charge us? Do you see what they're saying? She's like, please bring him back to me. And they're like, but what is so good about him? It's like, if he's not here, find another boyfriend. You know, you're really beautiful. Look around. Plenty more fish in the sea. He's putting you through a lot of hard work here. Why are you chasing him in particular? And so she launches into this long poem, verses 10 to 16, describing every bit of him, from his head to his feet, and then saying what she longs for is for him to speak to her. And strangely, that convinces them. They say to her, okay, right, okay, he is amazing, good. Uh, verse 6, verse 1, where is he then? And that's a strange bit of the story, isn't it? Because you would expect her to say, uh, that's why I'm talking to you. Remember that's how it started? She was like, I can't find him. Can anyone help me find him? They're like, why should we bother helping you find him? She says this big thing and they say, oh, right, okay, does sound good. Where is he? You'd expect her to be like, I don't know where he is. When in fact what she says is, he is where he always is, in his garden. Okay, the plot of this love story is lacking. It is like a bad joke. It looks like she's saying... I knew all along, actually, I was just looking for a reason to go on about him, to you, to boast about him. It doesn't feel like a very human relationship. Now, there is some connection to the everyday reality of human relationships here that may be useful to you if you're married or you're planning to get married or uh, you're planning someday to get married. It is sometimes like this when we sort of lose each other, when in some way you refuse or harden yourself against the other person, or you get into a pattern of refusing them and pushing them away because they're too much. Did you see there was real respect in the husband's response? Now, we do actually see in the Old Testament that kings, even ones we generally regard as good kings, they weren't really like big practicers of the principle of consent. They thought it was their right to force themselves on women. So the king's response of backing away from her when she says no, that's sort of what we expect after 2,000 years of Christian ethics, when consent has emerged as an important concept. It's very shocking to the original readers. It would have been considered a humiliation when she refuses him and he does not force. He just withdraws. But when he withdraws, he's still very easily found. And you notice... Um, when she gets to talking about him in verse 3, knowing he's in his garden, she doesn't even have to talk to him to know she's welcomed back as his beloved. 
his pride is not hurt. Or if it is hurt, he doesn't make a big deal of that. It doesn't make any difference in his attitude to her. She finds her way by remembering what's good to him, and she, he doesn't punish her. He doesn't ask for grand words of forgiveness. He sim she simply knows. I am my beloved, and he is mine. There is something here to learn. Perhaps there's distance in your marriage between you. I think you can do what she does and remember what's good about the person. But if you're the person who's withdrawn, you're hurt, you feel crushed, are you easily found? Deep marriage problems can't be solved by this rather obvious advice. I do realise there are people here who've been through totally dire marriage situations, and I'm not suggesting you should have just said, oh, well, think about how nice they are. But just in the normality of everyday life, if you feel yourself closing down to the other person, or you feel like the other person is rejecting you, you should withdraw, but withdraw to a place you can be easily found. If you're disenchanted with your spouse, sit down with someone and tell them what's good about them. When you're disenchanted with your spouse, it's easy to sit down and talk about them with someone else. But you're not usually talking about what's good about them. Quite the opposite. And if you are the withdrawer, you're the respecter, make sure you haven't emotionally hidden in some dark place where you can't be found, where you become colder and harder to each other. If the person makes any step towards you, welcome them straight back into giving and receiving love. I think the story is told here that the man is the withdrawer and the woman is the seeker. That often is true. Um, I don't like stereotypes, but they become stereotypes because there's some truth in them, like patterns often are there, and that's how we end up talking about them. Men are often proud, and if in relationships there's a pattern of being rejected they often become bitter and closed. And there is a call here particularly to men to respect consent, but also to be available without payment or demand to welcome your wife back to being loved. And a lot of marriages would be better if husbands were just willing to be like Jesus in this way. It's a very hard call then the Bible does describe the rule of a husband as giving up your own life. This is part of that. So there's a lesson here. For human relationships, remember what's good about the person, speak it out loud to close the distance between you, and if you've been rejected, often if it's a husband, adopt the humility and gentleness of Jesus. Be easily found, quick to welcome into deep intimacy again. So there's something practical there, but it's probably relevant only to a relatively small group of people. And I think the thing I think about this passage as I read it is like, who wants to be the friends? Who wants to listen to her going on at length about how great her husband is? Someone I once knew went away in the summer to help lead a Christian residential for young people. And the team of leaders didn't know each other before. And she got into a room, she was sharing with another leader, and already on the bedside table was a large A4-sized picture in a frame of a man. So it was a little bit strange. So uh, she sat down with the other girl and said, oh, is this, is this your photo? 
She said, yes, it's my fiancé. She picked up the photo and held it and said, can you believe I'm getting to marry the most handsome man who's ever lived? Uh, my friend did not know how to respond, <laughs> so she didn't say anything. The woman looked at the photo and said, every other woman in the world must be so jealous of me because I am getting to marry him. My friend thought, yes, no one's jealous of him though, are they? <laughs> Who wants to be the friend listening to this poem? If this is just a relationships manual, is it really suggesting women go on about their fiancés and husbands in this way? I mean, there's a grain of truth here. You can articulate what is good about someone to help find your way back to them, but this goes far beyond admiration, doesn't it? Actually, to worship. Uh, and that is the second thing we're going to see. The main thing, really, this passage is about. That's the man. Anyway, finding Jesus through worship. What if you have lost Jesus? What if this dawning realisation that what Christianity is offering you is not an ethical system, it is not stuff to do, it is not a pattern of attendance, it is a living, intimate experience of being loved by the best king of all kings. What if you've known that, and like me, you sort of lost it a bit? You've lost him. You've replaced experiencing that with just belief or respect. What should we do? Well, the way back Song of, Us, Song, of Song shows us is remembering. More than remembering, expressing how great he is. Verses 10 to 16, she goes from the top to the bottom and everything about him, she goes over out loud about what is good about him. Going over in our heads, in words, in songs, repeating out loud his glory. Worshipping is the way back. Sometimes God seems far away. I remember there was a church where I used, near where I used to live that had those very tacky church signs outside all the time. Um, I love them. I've talked about these before. There's a few ones like uh, Carpenter of Nazareth Seeks Joiners. Yeah, it's cheesy, but it's good. Or long-standing problem, try kneeling. <laughs> or wise men looked for Jesus, they still do. <laughs> yeah, love them all. One of them said, God seems far away. Guess who moved? That one's more profound, I think. God doesn't move away from us. But if we feel distance and he's not moved, what's the solution? It's to remember, not just to remember academically, but to express, to worship, to know that in Jesus you are close and accepted and loved by him. What needs to change is not your distance from God. He's always close. It's your heart's warmth to him, your love and appreciation. And that changes and grows as you deliberately remember and enjoy and speak and sing about how good he is. Now, it's interesting, her description of her lover, he doesn't actually sound like a normal human being. He's almost like a sort of statue, an unreal person. He has 
a gold head in verse 11. His arms are set with topazes. I mean, this is not a description of a normal human being. The language is borrowed, like so many times in Song of Songs, from other places in the Bible. People thought there was one great shepherd king who would look after them on behalf of God himself, and he was described, King David, as having ruddy cheeks. Verse 10, she says that about her beloved. People had learned there was one place, one land, they could go, filled with life, with perfume in the presence of God. And that's the smell that she says he has. Her lover is the God you meet in the land. His legs are pillars of marble, cedars of Lebanon. They had one building where they met with God, and that's what his legs are like. She's saying he is the temple where they met with God. How, his friend, her friends say, is he better than everybody else? And she's saying he's better than everybody else. He's one amongst 10,000 because you meet God when you come face to face with him. That's why he's so good. Nobody else can offer that. There is this great bit in the New Testament, I love it, where Jesus basically takes his disciples they have a bit of an argument with some people and it gets them into loads of trouble. All their community abandon them. And Jesus says to the disciples, do you want to leave as well? And Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, says to him, where else would we go? Only you have the words of eternal life. No one else can offer you that even if letting him in can be stressful and difficult and disruptive and upsetting, even if he takes his marble and cedarwood sledgehammer to my worksy way of being a Christian, he replaces doing things with being passionately united to the real God. Where else would we go? He, in all his overwhelming strength and glory, brings God right to us. He's outstanding among 10,000 because you meet God in him. You are gloriously united through Jesus to the God who made us and loves us. Now, just to be clear, that is not true of any human husband or wife. We've seen lots of times uh, over this series that there is a deep link between sexuality and spirituality, and that is true, but that can easily slip into thinking, I will find fulfillment in life if I find the right romantic partner. That's wrong. It's only this groom, Jesus, who brings us to God. But if that's true, how can I have lost him? Why can't I sense or feel being loved like that. I've told this story before, so I'm getting repetitive, maybe even in this series, but I remember once in my Christian life when I was feeling this way before, I spoke to an older Christian about it. I was working for a Christian organization, nothing was going wrong, I felt far from God and like nothing was working. And I told him this old story, really looking for advice about how to like, be a better minister or whatever. And he looked at me in the face and said, how much time do you spend adoring Jesus? Well, maybe then, 
definitely recently, I guess. The answer was basically none. No time at all. I didn't spend any time like this bride, remembering and enjoying Jesus' beauty and strength and glory. Oh, I attended places where other people were worshipping Jesus. I did that. Uh, I just had this view of like singing, joining together in corporate worship isn't that important. The sermon's the important bit. I did sing because I sort of feel like you have to do that. But I wasn't letting it get to me. I was sort of making smart comments and chit-chatting to people near me. My worship experience was a social experience. Surprise, surprise, I wasn't really feeling the love of Jesus. I did pray. Prayer happened. It was mostly, though, me telling God things I needed him to do. Never sitting in quiet, rehearsing to Jesus in prayer how great he is. How utterly incredible it is that I see the face of God smiling on me with love as I approach a glorious shepherd king. Praying out loud in a group just to express love for Jesus. I never did that. Embarrassing. People would judge my prayer. I had no sense of bursting to say how great Jesus is. How much time, my friend said, do you actually spend worshipping Jesus? Actually, the truth is basically none. The problem with how I'm talking, though, here is that I'm making it sound like a task. And for this bride, it is not a task. It is a joy. Her beloved is the best of all, and she loves remembering that. She can't wait to hear him speak. Her beloved, her friend. There is an invitation here to know Jesus in that type of way. The joy of outpouring yourself to God, to others in conversation, in shared prayer, together in singing. Stop trying to make Christianity a thing you do and let him in. When you adore him, you'll find him. And as she remembers how great he is, strange bit of the story, and her friends say, okay, where is he then? She knows exactly where he'll be, in his garden, where he always is. He hasn't moved. She also knows certainly, with certainty, straight away, without even talking to him, that I am my beloved's and he is mine. So let's just be clear. Sometimes people do get it wrong. It's not that God's far away and worshipping brings you close. The Bible says we are united to Jesus. So we can't get closer than that. No, it's that he is always where he is. Always close to us. He doesn't move. But remembering, enjoying, worshipping, rehearsing, that brings us alive. That we belong to him. That I am my beloved's and he is mine. This season has an effect. I think the picture of the friends here is that when friends see that we really think this of Jesus, they want to find him too. We can talk lots about how we might want to spread the gospel to Liverpool. There's lots of ways we'd like to do that. 
It will begin by us knowing we are loved by Jesus. Listen, there's no special tactic or spiritual discipline or course or spiritual experience I can commend to you to find Jesus except what the church calls the normal means of grace, where Jesus always is, the way God gets his kindness to us. If you gather with other Christians with a heart wanting to remember and enjoy the greatness and beauty of Jesus, you will find him. You will meet him there. If you open the Bible, not just to read the Bible, but to meet Jesus, you will find him there. If you pray, not just to say you've prayed, but to enjoy and express a heart of love for Jesus or asking to experience his love, you will find him there. In a moment, we are going to come to his table to remember him in the truest, most physical way he gives us, to participate with physical bread and wine that we eat, that we actually want to be united with him. That's why we eat it. You will find him. And the reassurance, I am my beloved's and he is mine. He will look after me and share everything he has with me. My heart will be awakened to this inexpressible joy of loving him. I am his. He is mine. Open your heart to adoring him. You'll find that great assurance again. <laughs>